The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop. Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go, and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, REMAX Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. REMAX has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. in this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we have got an authority on performance dog nutrition. And uh, it's somebody that, that you have heard speak a couple of times, and he sure didn't disappoint during our uh, podcast, our interview with him. But Dr. Arlie Reynolds of University of Alaska Fairbanks, he's a, a sled dog musher, and he is the senior nutritionist at Purina and I can't tell you how enthusiastic and fun it was to talk to him about about canine nutrition and how that transfers over to our hounds. Dr. Reynolds uh, Arley as he prefers to be called Chris is just such a warm personality 
so well spoken, <laughs> absolutely has the credentials in in several fields as a as a vet and as a he went to Cornell and uh, as a nutritionist and he's uh, works at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, as you said, and a representative for Purina and a world champion when it comes to mushing or sled dog racing and. He's a wealth of information, isn't he? Absolutely. The amazing thing about him is is he's very humble. He talks talks in a way that that's he's easy to understand and it's something that that I was looking for and have been looking for 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 several years of what kind of things can I do to enhance the performance of my dogs. And when we're asking these dogs to perform such phenomenal feats in the woods, and do that time after time after time, maybe days at a time. And he gave us some real-world answers of how we can supplement these dogs and how we can enhance their performance. And I think you said it. I mean, this guy signifies extreme performance in in dog the dog world for sure. Yeah, as I was fortunate to be invited to two of the Purina Sporting Dog Summits over the years, uh, and heard Dr. Reynolds at both of those uh, uh, seminars, uh, I was just so very impressed with the fact that he's got information that we in the hound world need and can use. And as you said, it can bring our hounds to extreme performance level if we'll just follow these simple steps. And they are simple. And uh, uh, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one and perhaps benefit as much from this podcast, if not more, than anyone we've done to date. And everything he talks about is attainable. There's no, there's no, uh, you don't have to have a degree. It's just simple stuff that is attainable for us as houndsmen to use when we're asking so much of our hounds. And the only thing disappointing about this podcast is the fact that it only goes about an hour and 15 minutes because we could have easily filled up, you know, a three or four hour time slot. Well, I agree, Chris, and and I was, uh, I couldn't believe the time went so fast, but our listeners are going to see why we brought Arlie Reynolds to them today, and uh, we'll be interested in seeing the comments that come in following uh, this episode, but I know it's going to be good. No doubt. So without any further delay, let's get to this podcast. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. And once again, we are coming at you with a very exciting guest, somebody that uh, Steve brought to the podcast for us through his experience at uh, the Purina Sporting Dog Summit. And uh, we have today Dr. Arlie Reynolds, who is the uh, Purina Senior Research Nutritionist. And we're going to talk to you today about how to feed your dog. So, Steve, I am so happy that you brought, uh, recruited this guest for us today. Well, Arlie uh, graciously agreed to come on our podcast after I had attended two of the Purina Sporting Dog Summits in uh, St. Louis. Uh, I think the first one was maybe around 2004, and the last one I believe was around was 10 years later. And uh, just so impressed with the information 
and the way that it was delivered in Arlie's talks. And I knew uh, when we started this podcast, if we ever had the opportunity, we wanted to bring him on. And he so graciously accepted. And so here we are. How are you today, Arlie? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks. It's really nice to get a chance to chat with you guys. Well, it's definitely our pleasure to have you on the on the podcast. Uh, one of the things that that I was excited about is is several years ago, as houndsman, I I see a lot of questions come up about nutrition and different things like that, and I started to research myself about how to uh, feed my dog for for better performance, and I happened to come across a, a website called Sled Dog Central, and mm-hmm. started following how the mushers are uh, feeding their dogs. And that is your specialty. It's your passion and with the sled dog community. And I'd like for us to bridge the gap here a little bit between what you're doing there. But before we get to the, the technical part of this, and I think it's going to be a great podcast. We've got a lot of questions to ask you that we can we can bridge that gap. But can you give us a little bit of background in, in for you personally and also with uh, – uh, your accomplishments in the sled dog world and what you're doing. Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I, I grew up in northern New York State. Um, I had always wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a little kid, and I was fortunate enough to get into vet school. I went to Cornell and um, went out into practice, really liked it. But after a couple of years of being out in practice, I realized that about 90% of what I was doing was the same every day, and I wanted a job I'd never need an alarm clock for to uh, to get up and go to work, that I'd be that excited about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had been an, an endurance athlete myself. I'd, I'd rode crew at Cornell and wanted to combine my interest in veterinary medicine with my interest in athletics. And So I wrote a proposal to study the relationship between diet and performance in sled dogs. And um, over the course of four years of a Ph.D., um, I, I started to realize how phenomenal athletes dogs really are and the neat thing during that is we didn't just run sled dogs we ran other types of working dogs too and truly the physiology of of pretty much all of our working dogs is very very similar they may look a little different on the outside they may do a different job but the way they work um is really similar and they are phenomenal i mean some of the some of the things we found out during that those studies were that um you know one of the things we we do to measure the ability of an athlete is we measure the maximum amount of oxygen they can consume per unit body weight per unit time we call that vo2 max it's kind of the size of their motor right of their athletic motor right yeah i, was, and, I had a question that, about vo2 for you so this is going to be interesting okay well is it okay to talk about it absolutely now? you just roll okay. with it so one of the things we found um in our early studies um you know at that time the the, the human athlete who was the, the really the had the highest vo2 max ever measured was a um a Norwegian skier named Bjorn Dolly, cross-country skier, and his, his VO2 max was 82. And when we put our dogs on the treadmill and, and uh, we developed a technique to measure their VO2 max by having them breathe into a mask and measure the, the gas that they, they, they exhale um, and, and take the difference between that and air, what we found is um, our dogs you know, were, were right around 240 mils um, per kilogram per minute, or, or basically about three times what the very best human athlete was. Amazing. And, uh, and so, you know, with that kind of uh, information, we started to really get a handle on what the scope of the athletic capacity of these dogs are, and it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's literally three times ours. That's why I jokingly tell people that's why I ride on the sled and the dogs pull it, because they're just such better athletes than I am. <laughs> and and that that's leads me into my 
you know, the next topic that I, that I really wanted to get into is you're not just researching this, you are, um, doing your own sled dog racing and down here, everybody is at least familiar with, with, I did a rod and what that Mm -hmm. means, but you're actually doing a different type of racing, which is sprint racing. But if I, if I read your resume, right, you've won the, the, uh, for rendezvous open world championship twice. Is that correct? Yeah. And yeah. So, um, we, we were, that's a great question. You know, um, I got into racing because I was doing this work, this research work and talking to folks and started to realize that if I really wanted to understand what people and their dogs were going through, I had to do it myself, you know, and, and because I loved athletics to begin with, it was just a natural transition. And, um, you know, racing dogs became one of the great passions of my adult life uh, and I wanted to show mostly that what we were doing in the laboratory what we we're doing with our breeding program what we we're doing with our nutritional program um, could apply to the real world and help people and um, people definitely believe that if you start beating them <laughs> and they, they, they right. start paying attention to you and um, yeah we were fortunate enough to win um, the world championship in 2013 and 2014 and then I actually turned my team over to one of my mentors um, because I, I, I started working with the veterinary program here at the university, and um, that was, this is a neat story. She had won last in 1993, mm-hmm. and she came back and won both the Fur Rendezvous and the Open North American, which are two big races. We, we won them in 13 and 14, both of them, and then she won it in 2017 at age 66. She became the oldest person to ever win it and the only woman to ever win the world championship. So that was a, that was a really neat experience. Phenomenal. No yeah. And what role did you play in that win? Uh, I was. I, I went from the from the racer to the coach, which was really fun because Roxy. Her name's Roxy Wright. She's a legend in our sport. Um, she hadn't raced in you know twenty some years, almost twenty five years, and so um, you know a lot of things had changed the technology in terms of sleds and stuff like that. But she's such a phenomenal dog person. I got to tell you one quick story on this because it'll give you an idea of of our relationship and the relationship with the dogs. You know, yeah, we, please do. We train dogs together for 20, almost 30 years. Um, and she's just a, she's what, like a dog whisperer, you know, a real master in terms of dog training. So the first day of the Open North American, which is a 20-mile race, she had been around the trail the day before, first time she'd been around it in 25 years, and, and said, what do you think I should shoot for for a winning time for this race? And I said, well, based on the trail conditions and what I know our dogs can do, I think this race can be won in um, 64 minutes and 19 seconds. You know, that's based on the pace that we should have. And so we we started the race the next day, and it was very cold, and her GPS wasn't working. And that's usually how you start to, at least at the beginning of the race, tell her that you're going the right pace. Hers wasn't working, so she couldn't use it. Mm-hmm. She she won that heat in 64 minutes and 16 seconds. <laughs> she beat it day, by three seconds, right? By three seconds, right. But, I mean, without a GPS, right? That's how close she ran to the awesome. time I, th- I thought the dogs could run. Yeah. And then um, the last day. Um, it's not like had, you're getting it down to a science, right? <laughs> well, it's, you know, that's it, there's part art and part science when you're running dogs. I think you guys all know that. You know, there's there are things I can tell you that dogs need and ways that we can support them. But when it comes down to it, you need somebody who can see what that dog is doing and and respond to support that dog. And the, and you can't learn that in a textbook. you got to just be out there and get getting snow or dirt or dog poop on your shoes. You know, you can't. You can't teach somebody that. They have to learn it themselves, and it only comes from hours and hours of, of really working with dogs. And um, so the third day of that race, they add eight and a half miles to the race. 
So Roxy said, what do you think we should shoot for for a winning time there? And I said, I think 94 minutes even will win this race. And she, she ran that heat in 94 minutes and two seconds. So, um, <laughs> oh. you know, we went on to, to win that race. It was, a, it was just a wonderful experience, you know, to, to have someone who's been my mentor mm. for 30 years turn around and take the team and, and do that well with it. So, yeah, so I've had a lot of fun over 30 years of racing dogs all over Alaska, Canada, and the Midwest of the United States, um, Northeast of the United States, and, and um, you know, and, and lots of villages here in Alaska where you really learn a lot about people and their relationship with dogs. It absolutely amazed me as I was, you know, preparing for this, this interview early. You know, I watched how these handlers, these sled dog mushers, interacted with their dogs and that to me you could tell that that they were in tune with every dog in their pack you know and and mushers talk about swing dogs and lead dogs and and you know a lot of these different working aspects team dogs and and it's so similar to what we do with our hounds especially big game hunters with rig dogs and pack dogs and strike dogs start dogs so it, it it's just intriguing to me to watch watch how you're operating and i'm excited to hear uh what we can bring back to our sport that you're already you're already putting into practice in yours yeah i think there are so many parallels between what you guys do with your hounds and what we do with our sled dogs like you said there are different roles for different dogs and the key is is really knowing your dogs and how they best fit into those and and I think there's a lot into reading how your dogs are performing too in terms of making sure you're giving them what they need nutritionally uh, making sure you can notice injuries early on so they don't become big injuries and and you know what what you need to do with them to get them fit enough to to do the incredible stuff that they do and I think yeah. what your guys do is pretty incredible too it really is it's 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 quite a athletic performance when a dog is, is running an animal like that and hunting for, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles in a, in a, in a shot. It's really similar to what our dogs do. Steve, I know that you're chomping at the bit there. Well, uh, Arlie, uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of uh, why we really wanted you on today, Let's talk about those dogs that you have, uh, how you've bred them, what type of dogs they are. Just give uh, uh, a little overview of, of the dogs you're running. And what the expectation sure. for their performance is, that's that's a neat thing, too. Oh, thanks. Sure. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, everybody, uh, I'm sure it's somewhat similar with you guys, everybody here in the dog mushing world sort of has their own line of dogs, and you sort of select for dogs that fit your personality, how you like to train, how you like to run. I like dogs that have really high enthusiasm. So our, our line of dog has old traditional Alaskan Huskies that come from the villages here in Alaska that we've then bred in some other breeds to. Um, we've bred in um, English Pointer, German Shorthair Pointer, even a touch of Greyhound. Um, and, and actually some of our lines even have a little bit of Coonhound in them. Um, so and the reason we bring those other lines of dogs in is because they add different things. You know, Huskies have fantastic endurance and coat and really good feet. Um, they're, they're oftentimes not quite as biddable um, as, a, as a hound or a, a pointer breed would be. And so by, by bringing those pointers in there, we get some real biddability, which helps us in terms of training leaders. Um, and I think, you know, adds a lot to the enthusiasm of things. You know, hounds are pretty darn enthusiastic, and I, I love that aspect of them. And if, if you've ever seen any videos of my team, you know, by the time you get to the third day of our races, 
So our, our big races are between 20 and 30 miles a heat, which doesn't sound long in terms of Iditarod, but our guys are averaging 20 miles an hour over that distance. And, you know, in our big races, we start on city streets and then usually go through, um, uh, like bike paths or things like that and end up in a, a green belt area and then come back. And so our dogs have to be able to run, you know, in the fur rendezvous in the open world championship, we go through, I think, 11 different culverts. Um, hmm. Then we go over bri- bridges where there's 55 mile an hour traffic going on underneath us. We go by people that are cooking burgers, you know, 10 feet off the trail on a Weber. Um, uh, we, we, I've, I've had to weave in between uh, uh, second grade class on snowshoes. Um, I've, um, <laughs> run into, you know, fat tire bikers out there, moose, people on horseback. So it's really like a steeplechase in a way. There's, and it's, I think it's similar for your guys. They have to go through a lot of different situations and be able to, to maneuver that and, and have it not be too hard on their heads as well as their bodies. And so there's a ton of training that comes in along with the conditioning to make sure that the dogs are prepared for all of those different things. And I love that aspect of it. I love the, that, you know, the challenge of that type of training. But, the, you know, the way I, I look at it, our dogs are different than Iditarod dogs, and I have nothing but respect for Iditarod dogs. Mm-hmm. I've worked as an Iditarod vet and worked with a lot of Iditarod mushers and helped them with their program in terms of training and nutrition. Um, but it's a different different game. For us, it's speed over distance, and for them, it's endurance and be able to recover. And, you know, there are very, very few dogs out there that can run 20 miles an hour for an hour and a half. I, I liken it to... Um, you know, there are fewer people that can throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball than there are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. It's just a God-given talent. Um, mm-hmm. And so through our breeding program, we've, we've tried to, to fine-tune that so we, we get a mix of good stamina and speed and that those crosses. So generally our dogs were right around a quarter hound or bird dog and the rest three-quarters husky. And at that level... Um, they could handle the environment here, which can be pretty cold in the winter, but they're also good at dissipating heat because our big races are in the spring when it's a little warmer. They had great speed, great stamina, and they were really fun to work with, super enthusiastic. So going back to my earlier comment, if you see a video of my team starting the third day of, of these races, a lot of the other teams are a little quiet and a little bit reserved. And my team, I'd have to have a person on every dog because they're jumping three feet in the air to go. And mm-hmm. I, I just like that kind of enthusiasm. That's certainly you the bet. type of enthusiasm we like too. You know, you want to have that dog <laughs> that you pull out of the, the box at three o'clock in the morning or the third day in on a hunt and, you know, have them ready to go. So Steve, you got anything you want to add to that? Well, no, I'm just thinking of the parallels to our sport of coon hunting, uh, the world championships where dogs are, uh, you know, maybe asked to compete six, seven, eight times in uh less days than that and uh, wow. also the bear hounds uh you know, when you mentioned the enthusiasm of of uh turning those dogs loose on a track in some rugged terrain uh say over in the eastern mountains or uh wherever and and seeing them hit that uh bear track and just go with with that gusto and excitement and but uh you know, the thing about it is they have to ha- be in condition and they have to have uh, the proper fuel. And yeah. uh, that's where we miss the boat a lot of times. And I think, uh, uh, I don't know, I may be jumping ahead here, Arlie, but you said something uh, that I recalled in one of your talks at the Purina Summit that, uh, you know, we tend to just uh, 
feed our dogs anything that'll keep them alive. And uh, a lot <laughs> yeah, of times <laughs> that stuck with me all these years. But uh, yeah, that that's um, I see a lot of parallels. I, I made notes when I listened to you talk before, but I want you to just go. Uh, Chris, I think perhaps has a. Uh, we we were told that outlines in our podcast are not as interesting, but we have so much ground to cover. <laughs> We need to to probably I probably let, need to let Chris uh, kind of steer us in the direction here, but uh, you've got a lot of good information for us. Yeah, so Steve hit on it. What we what we want to cover here with you, early and and we want to find out what we can do to enhance performance on our side. Um, I've done done some research on articles that you've contributed to or written. And uh, um, one of the things I would like to draw a parallel with is is the sled dog and the hounds. And um, how can a sled dog performance, how can the sled dog performance provide a model for our hounds? You know, what are the parallels there that we should be looking for or trying to achieve with our hounds in nutrition? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's a simple answer is that they're almost identical, really. I mean, your guys are oftentimes work like I, I mean, I've I've seen I've seen uh, videos of dogs running in cold weather too. So your dogs can can and do run in cold weather, particularly I think for mountain lions and things like that. But um, a lot of times you're also running in hot weather. So you have a very versatile dog, a dog that can do an, an amazing, you know, perform over an amazing scope of of environmental conditions and we try to shoot for that too and your dogs also have incredible stamina they have to to do what they do i mean to run six to eight sessions like that in less than that many days is very similar to what we do in stage racing and you have to have dogs that are incredibly well conditioned and well fed um, to get them to recover well enough between those types of bouts of exercise um, to be able to keep going and, and keep performing well so that was one of the things we we studied when we first started looking at this is, um, you know, we looked at what traditional diets were being used in sled dogs. And by that, I mean by Alaska Native people um, over the centuries, not because at that time there was a big controversy. Should these diets be high carbohydrate or should they be high fat? Um, and, you know, that this was in the started in the 70s when we started first getting around the concept of carbohydrate loading for human athletes, for marathon mm-hmm. runners. Yep. And I used to do that were, in high school football. Yeah, sure. So so those studies were, were of course, run on people, um, and it started in Sweden. And they, they noticed that if you fed a high-carbohydrate diet, you would start with more stored carbohydrates or sugar in your muscle, and then you'd have that fuel tank full and you could run longer. And there was a big, a really strong association between loading carbohydrates or glycogen, that's the stored form of carbohydrate in muscle, loading uh, carbohydrates in your muscle and how well you would perform in a marathon. Well, we mentioned a little earlier in the talk that dogs have you know, three times the VO2 max of humans. Mm-hmm. Now, those carbohydrate stores are important for dogs doing work, but they're important when they're doing super intense short bouts of work. And you know, the type of work that your dogs do and my dogs do are actually very intense, but not, you know, not at 100% intensity. They're like at 80% intensity, but for long periods of time, for hours. Mm-hmm. And so they actually rely more on fat as their main fuel. 
and the really inter- so we started studying that and we found that that you know the, the the strategy for dogs in terms of stamina wasn't to load them with carbohydrates because that really limited you know that 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 fuel tank is one fiftieth the size of the fuel tank for fat. If you were to, you know, take the measure the total amount of energy stored in carbohydrate in a dog's body versus the total amount stored in fat, and even in our nice lean fit dogs, it's 50 times more energy in fat. So the strategy for dogs is to optimize fat metabolism and fat utilization, and to spare the carbohydrates for when you really need them. And the way that you do that is to feed a high protein, high fat diet year round and train on that. And what we found, because we looked at not just their blood values, but we actually took some small muscle biopsies from the dogs. This is back when I was a graduate student at Cornell. Um, it, it was really amazing. We found that the, um, the dogs that were fed high-fat diets didn't store as much carbohydrate as the dogs fed a high-carbohydrate diet, mm-hmm. but they used it at half the rate, so it actually lasted longer. And when we train dogs on a high-fat diet, what we do is we actually change the structure and function of their muscle. We actually put things in their muscle that make them way more, um, way more efficient at burning fat. And then they can, they can burn fat at a very high level. In other words, a very high power output, almost at the same level as carbohydrates. So, so they, that allows them to go for hours and hours without dipping into this carbohydrate tank. If you, once that carbohydrate tank is depleted, then the dog has to slow down to a pretty slow pace. So, um, so the strategy for dogs isn't to load with carbohydrates, it's to optimize fats. And the, the, the issue there is that um, you have to do two things. You have to be, it takes 12 to 16 weeks for the dog's body to adapt, to make all these adaptations so they, they can really optimize the use of fats. Um, and we've, we've looked at this both from the level of their, their gut, you know, from their intestinal tract and their muscle. And it's about the same. It's about 12 to 16 weeks. So where, where Steve, the comment Steve was making is a lot of folks in your arena and mine too um, will often feed anything that prevents death during the off season because it's cheaper and they have a lot of dogs. Right. But the, the problem is they lose that ability to really uh, optimize their use of fat. And so when they start the season, they start feeding a good food while the dog's 12 weeks behind. And it takes them a long time to catch up, and you're much more likely to have them injured. They won't respond as well to the conditioning program that you're giving them. So what we do now and have been done for the last 25 years is um, we feed a really good performance food year-round. So it's a high-fat, high-protein food. We just feed less of it in the off-season so the dogs don't gain too much weight. Mm-hmm. And just by keeping them on that diet, they will maintain their ability to use fat. And the very first day you take them out and exercise them, they'll respond better. They'll... So so that's during their layoff season. I, is that what you're saying? You're, you're feeding uh, that I, even I'm saying during... year-round. Year so, but, year but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times, guys, and I mean, I'm, I'm saying our, our arena is just as guilty as yours, Guys will feed the best food they can feed when the dog's working hard, and then when they put them up for the off season, they'll switch them to you know something real cheap from the grocery store. I got and, you. Um, and the problem with that is when you do that, you end up um, taking away all the benefits you gained when they when they were on that good food, and it takes them three to four months to get it back. So it's you know it's even though and then the other thing too that you got to keep in mind is that when you're feeding 
a really good diet during the off season, you're feeding a lot less of it. So the cost comparison between feeding that and feeding a, a less expensive, lower quality food isn't really much difference in cost, but there's a huge difference in the in the results from that. Mm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, abs. Sure. You know, and we're all ahead, guilty Steve. of it. Like as you said, Arlie, we're all guilty of that. You know, uh, you know, I stay within a brand, a particular brand, and mm-hmm. uh, but I'm I tend, you know, to back off. And knowing, uh, you know, I've been to the seminars. <laughs> But it's a temptation to do that, you know, because of the weight factor. And I think that a lot of us, and and I know that you're right, but we get into this idea that we've got to feed this dog X number of cups every day or he's not going to, to do well. And we really uh, are hesitant to back off on the amount of food. Uh, I live yeah, in a okay. retirement community, and <laughs> I see all kinds of overweight, overfed dogs on a yeah, daily basis, you know. so Yeah. You know, it's, that's a great point, Stephen. I really appreciate you bringing it up. You know, the, the, people do get stuck in that rut of, i got to feed this much food. This dog needs this many cups of food. And um, that's another thing that we've tried to get away from. And, again, this gets back into the art side of feeding dogs rather than the science. And what I've learned to do over the years, which I think has really helped us in terms of our success, is to feed dogs for the right body condition rather than how much, you know, they use the same amount of food. And I'm sure you guys have examples like this too, but, you know, mm-hmm. when um, in, our, in our kennel we have, you know, a group of puppies, a group of yearlings, which are kind of learning what to do, but they're not, and they'll race, but not with the big guys. And then we have the, the, the main crew, you know, and then we've got the retired guys, and they all have a role. And, and the, the yearlings are the ones that are often the easiest to see this in. But I have dogs, you know, young males, that will sometimes take twice as much food to keep the right body condition as a, a male that weighs the same amount but is two or three years old. Um, and, you know, those, those growing males, they need a lot. And then within my race team, I'll have two different dogs that weigh exactly the same, and one might be getting that one and a half times as much food as the other one just because he's a little more active on his chain, uh, he might not have quite the same hair coat, whatever it is, it, it, he, he requires more food. And so feeding for me is a very individualized thing. And, you know, we have real temperature extremes here. I've seen it go, honestly, 100 degrees Fahrenheit difference in 24 hours. That, I've seen that happen twice since wow. I've lived here, from 52 below to 54 above. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's not good when that happens, trust me. But, you know, we'll have oftentimes in January three weeks where it never gets above 30 below and it's hitting 50 and 60 below. And when that time period comes, I know that I've got to really watch the dogs closely. And, uh, that, you know, the dogs that um, I anticipate that and feed them more food. When we're really stacking on the miles in our conditioning program, I'll, I'll anticipate that and give them more food. And um, this time of year is actually the hardest time of year to feed them because it's getting colder. We're really putting on miles, and they're growing a new coat. And those three stresses at once, are usually that, that's when I have to feed them the most that I have to feed all year. Once I get those dogs fit, um, you know, I, I, and we're racing, a lot of times they're living on the truck, which is a nice warm environment. Mm-hmm. I often have to cut them back quite a bit or they gain a ton of weight. And so it's, it, that's what I'm talking about, the art side of things, is that you have to kind of anticipate what you're doing with your dogs. You know, the things that, that really stress them are things like travel, 
exercise, changes in environmental temperature, those things, and both heat and cold in, in, in that regard. Those things, you know, you want to anticipate and not let the dogs get too thin because if they get thin, they're going to get weak, they'll get tired, and they're more susceptible to getting sick and injured. And you also don't want them to get too heavy because if they get too heavy, they're going to have to carry that extra weight. That can also predispose them to being injured, and in warm weather, it can really predispose them to be getting overheated. So there's that line, a fine line that we're trying to keep these dogs on. And oftentimes it requires, you know, adjusting their food almost daily, if not certainly weekly. And I think the best way to assess that isn't weighing them. I've done this for, you know, 30 years. And our dogs um, actually weigh the most when they are the the thinnest and fittest because they've got the highest amount of muscle mass. Mm. So if I weigh them at the peak of the season, that's actually when they usually weigh the most. And in the summertime, when their muscle, you know, they, their muscle mass has gone down a little, um, they, they will oftentimes actually weigh a little more because they might have a little more water, a little more fat. Not a lot more, but it's, it's, it's just interesting that they weigh less during that time of year. Um, so, so what I do is look at their body condition score, and I run my hands over them. I try to do that every day, or at least once a week, but usually daily, especially if I'm getting close to a race event and I want to make sure they're honed to exactly the right condition. And so what I do is I take my hand and I run it over their back and I want to feel the spinous process of their backbone. I don't want it sticking out like a, you know, like, like, a uh, so that it's a bunch of these big jagged bones sticking out. That's, that's not what you want, right. but you, you don't want to, have to dig through an inch of fat to get to it either. Mm-hmm. And on a, a dog like a hound, your dogs are a lot like mine. Mine are f- actually fairly short-coated. Um, I, when they inhale, I like to be able to catch that last rib or two. I don't want to see all the ribs. That's too thin. But if I can catch that last rib, I want a nice tuck to their abdomen, a nice hourglass shape when you look down. And I think maybe the easiest place to assess them is right over their hips, you know, the, the, the wings of the ilium, those bones that come up um, from the pelvis. Uh, if, if you have a nice level amount of flesh between those um, and, and it's not mounded up like a big rounded area between them that then the dog's a little too heavy and you want to if you push down you might be able to just feel the spinous process on that part of the spine that's called the sacrum between the two sides of the pelvis mm-hmm. um, that's fine so you want to level or just the teeniest bit concave but not so concave that those those processes are sticking out of, of the sacrum that's often the easiest place to assess a dog because almost every dog will it will, will be you know, around that, that, what I just described there, when they're, when they're in good condition for running, um, you know, because they have differences in coats, it's much easier to feel this than it is to just look at it. That is, that's an important thing. And it sounds like we're going to be repeating it, but I want to kind of boil that down a little bit. So you said something about a, a score, a body score. What did you, what did you call it? The, the body condition score. So um, Nestle Karina score. came up with a chart. Okay. Yeah, they call a, a BCS or body condition score. They usually score from one to nine. And for our dogs running, you know, the way they do, about a four is optimum. You know, there are other breeds like Labradors where you might go to a five just because they've got to swim in cold water and they need a little bit more insulation. Mm-hmm. But for, for dogs like yours and mine that are going to be really running lots of miles and, um, you know, they need a little bit of reserves, but they don't want to carry too much extra weight. Um, that four is on, on, out of nine is about right. And that's basically what I just described. You know, you catch that last rib, they've got a nice tuck and hourglass look. And, and um, you can feel those spinous processes by pushing down, but um, you don't have to dig through an inch of fat, but they're also not, you know, 
You're not like strumming guitar strings across the top going through <laughs> those guys. Now, that's an analogy that that we can relate to right there. So, the and that's available through Purina's website, do you think? Yeah, if you if you yeah, if you absolutely, if you and you can contact them and they'll actually send them to you. They'll send you a laminated copy. Um it's something that they developed through research there um Dr. Dottie Laflamme is the one that actually developed that, and that's used internationally now by veterinarians. Almost every veterinary office you walk into will have that there because it helps. You know, Steve, you made a great point. We do have a huge problem with obesity in the pet dog mm. uh, side of the world right now. It's probably the number one nutritionally related problem in, in dogs today. Um, and, uh, and a lot of owners just don't see it, you know, because it comes on gradually and they just don't see it. But if you can show them a chart on the wall when they say, you know, this is where your dog is and this is where your dog should be, it's a little easier mm. for them to see. Absolutely. Well, I have a particular situation here that if we can bring this down to make it a little personal here. I have a 17-month-old treeing walker pup. Mm -hmm. We still call him a pup until they're, well. Until you get another pup. Yeah, until they finally finish (laughs) out in what we call finished (laughs) coon dog, and he's going to be a pup. At any rate, uh, I had that pup here in in florida where i live on the west coast of florida i sent him for the summer up to pennsylvania uh, back in april with the breeder up there he's been up there all summer i just brought him back last week um and he he was in great shape he was on a tie out a cable where we was able to exercise he was hunted mm-hmm. regularly uh all those things now i bring him here now we have a change in environment we've got uh, uh, 80 degrees here today. Wow. Wow. Uh, tomorrow <laughs> is go- uh, are up in uh, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. It's probably about 35 today. Um, so, and then <laughs> to compound this, I intend to take him to the White River of Arkansas and hunt him uh, for seven consecutive nights out there. Now, I'm not going to t- turn him loose at dark and and expect him to go to daylight. Nothing at all like that. But, you know, I'm uh, in thinking about all these changes and everything, now I'm thinking, well, I should have started this three months ago thinking seriously about, although he was on a very, uh, very good uh, brand of quality, uh, complete uh, and balanced diet, I'm sure. But at any rate... Um, what, what does a guy do like that? I guess if I could boil this down, you know, all of a sudden here we are hunting season. We've mm-hmm. been busy all summer. Uh, the temperature's been hot. Uh, we haven't got to exercise these dogs as much as we'd like. I know there's no quick fix, but what's the best way for us to approach the hunting season with a dog that's not probably as prepared as he should be? Well, that's a great question, and um, it is hard. You know, I think particularly for folks that live in the southern um, and midwestern parts of the country where, you know, summers are hot and humid, and you you, you don't want to be running the dog so that they overheat, and so the only time you can probably train them is either early in the morning or at night. And, um, you know, based on work schedules and family life and stuff like that, that can be challenging. Um, there are some things you can do uh, in the summer to, uh, to to start getting the dogs ready. And the first thing, of course, is to get them on that good diet. And, and by that, what I mean is a diet that's a minimum of 20% fat, 30% protein. Those are the two things you want to look for. 
Um, you know, and there are, there are other things that will tell you it's a good quality diet by you know what the main ingredients are, and and the, you know reputable manufacturers spend a lot of time doing research to make sure their diets are really digestible and really perform well. But those those are the things that you want to look for. So you start with that, okay, and start that, and do that all summer. But you're gonna, like you guys said, you're gonna be feeding them a lot less, and people are just gonna have to get used to that. You know, feed for that body condition score. Don't let them get overweight because an overweight dog. When you first start hunting them, is going to really struggle. Um, but so you, you know, have them in that nice four out of nine body condition score, and then do what you can do. And and you know, you don't have to. They don't have to be Olympic athletes um, the first time you get them out in the fall. It's nice if they're fit, and if you've been able to do that, that you'll, you'll have a you'll be able to hunt them longer, and you'll have a great experience. But you don't have to do that. I mean, if you can get them out even doing some walking with you, if you can get them out doing a little bit of work, if the dog likes to swim, that's one of the things we did with our dogs because we're, you know, with climate change, we've had a lot of really hot summers up here. I actually built a pool and uh, swam my dogs during the summer to, when it was too hot to exercise them other ways. And swimming is a great exercise. It takes a little training for a dog to get used to it and to like it. But most of them, even, you know, and Huskies have an aversion to water. Um, but our guys got so they actually really liked it in the warm weather mm. because it cooled them off so much. So that's that's one thing you can do. Mm. Um, you know, uh, roading them uh, in early morning or night, but always being really, really careful of, um, of temperature, of the dog's temperature. And, and I always carry a thermometer with me in the summertime um, when I'm training dogs so that if I'm worried about a dog, I can take their temperature. I also, um, you know, do that so that when they finish a run, if a dog's looking a little stressed, I can, I can get an idea of what their temperature is. That's just a really good safety thing to have with you all the time in, in warm weather. Um, but then, you know, the first time that you take them out, you want to you wanna sort of taper your expectations according to what you, how well you've been able to prepare the dog. And if you haven't been able to prepare them well, their enthusiasm is going to outstrip their ability, and you've got to be there to protect them. So, you know, right. take it gently at first. Um, read the dog. And when it looks like, you know, try to try to intervene before they're in trouble because, you, first of all, you don't want to overheat them. We can talk about that later, but that's a big issue. Um, but second of all, you don't want to discourage them, especially a young dog, right? You don't want that dog to think that, hey, this is a lot more work and a lot less fun than I thought it, it started out being. You want to mm-hmm. stop them before you get to that point. And then the dogs are a phenomenal in, in the way that they will adapt to things. It won't take long for them to get pretty fit as long as you're you're doing what, what we just described and giving them time to recover between bouts of exercise. That's real important, too. And there's things you can do to speed that recovery. We can talk about that later if you guys want yeah. to. Absolutely. Um, both yeah. both in, in terms of you know activities and in terms of the way that you feed them. I've got a I've got a question. So Steve was talking about a dog that's been inactive, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to the mountains. I'm going to be camped in the mountains. Um, you know, I turn a dog loose on a bear race in the morning. He puts in maybe seven miles of pretty intense hunting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get him back to the truck. What do I need to be doing when I get him back to the truck? When I finally get him back to where I can help him recover, what sort of things should I be doing there then? That's a that's a super duper question, and there are several. I got to ask you a couple questions though, so okay. I can help you refine that. Okay, when's the next time he's going to hunt? Probably later that day. The next track I okay. find. Okay, give, how many hours or minutes in between? It may be. I mean, I, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, the way it normally goes, 
You know, you mm-hmm. get them back to the truck, you pour some water out, you hope they drink some water, you put them in the truck, you go down the road. You might go 10 minutes down the road and find another track, and you want to turn loose on that track. Okay. Wow. That's Okay, so that is a little bit more challenging. Okay. So our guys get 20, 24 hours in between um, runs. But what you're talking about is a little bit more like an Iditarod dog, where, uh, although your dogs are running harder, where they, you know, they come in and they, they may rest for 15 minutes or they might rest for four hours. It depends on... Mm-hmm where the, what their schedule is so um <clears throat> what you said was was spot on the first thing you want to do is try to get some water into them you know of all the nutrients that 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 define performance water is the most single most important one and we can talk a little later if you want about some strategies for hydration too because we've, we've developed some of those that work for our guys and i think actually your conditions are fairly similar to ours you know we deal with the fact that water freezes really fast um so right. we need to teach the dogs <laughs> to drink when there's water when, when the water's still liquid and so we t- actually train them to drink it right away and we do that by putting things in there that taste good and and um you know giving it to them when they're thirsty so right after a run well, like you described let's talk about water baiting it sounds like a pretty good place to to have that conversation sure so uh you know that's exactly what we call it is water baiting so um we and we use different things for that we'll use um a little bit of ground up dry dog food and and mix it in with um and surprisingly for like for our guys of course it's not surprising i guess uh, we usually water with warm water um not hot but warm water because they'll drink it better and it freezes a little slower and um and actually studies have shown that water in that range in that like 60 to 75 degree range is actually absorbed better than really cold water. Um, now, when your dogs are, when it's really hot out, um, you may want to use a little bit cooler water because that'll be more palatable for the dogs. Um, but so we, we use baited water in the morning about an hour and a half before we're going to run. And the reason I do it then is this may be a slight difference between our two sports, but you know, keep in mind I'm running 16 dogs all together. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has to stop and pee, that really disrupts the rhythm of my team, and I can't <laughs> afford a single stop, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've won some of these races by two seconds over 70 miles. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty critical for us. So I want that water out of that dog before it has to um, race. So we'll, we'll water them anywhere between an hour and a half and two hours before a run, and then we'll, we'll air them once or twice usually about a about an hour after they water and then again about an hour and a half to two hours after and that usually is enough to get the urine out of their bladder so that they don't get a full bladder when they're running and have to pee because that's pretty uncomfortable for them and and like i said kind of disruptive um for your guys i don't i imagine they can stop and pee and it's not too bad um of right. a deal so right so you can probably water a little bit closer if you want to um but uh you know so that's we will use dried dog food we'll use um sometimes we use some cooked fish because that has a really strong smell and the dogs like it um i've had a couple finicky dogs that weren't great drinkers that will reserve special things like um canned cat food for whatever you know they make cat food extremely palatable and um and just a, a tablespoon of that in a like a quart of water will sometimes be enough to get a dog to, to drink so what um, about so that's the go ahead I didn't want to interrupt you there, Doctor. Go no, ahead. No, 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 no. You you had a question. Yeah. Ireland. So, so one of the things that I've done in the past is I've used different things for water baiting. But what about chicken broth? Just a little bit of chicken broth added to the water. Yeah. Is, what does the salt in chicken broth do? Should I stay away from salt? Uh, 
Should I not as long worry as, about? As long as you're keeping no, I think as long as you're keeping the salt concentration, you know, fairly low, uh, then you're going to be fine. And that does. I mean, would you rather eat? no salt chicken soup or chicken soup that had a little salt in it you know um, right. <laughs> it's gonna salt is one of the greatest palate palatability enhancers that we have but the thing where you want to be a little bit careful is if you add too much salt then it can actually um lead to to the dogs then having to urinate more because it has to get rid of that salt and pour more pull more water with it and you can actually uh, lessen their hydration status. So, you know, gotcha. a little salt is really good. Too much salt is not so good. Yeah, and no, that, that's a great point you bring up. Um, when we're looking at electrolyte formulas for dogs, you know, dogs don't sweat like people do. The only place they can sweat is in between their, their pads of their feet. So it's a, you know, it's not a, how they cool themselves off. So um, I don't really tend to use electrolytes unless the dog has diarrhea. And if the dog has diarrhea, then I will add some electrolytes in there. Hmm. If you do want to use electrolyte solution just because it's palatable, um, what I do is cut it in, in about half with water so that you don't run into that problem we just described with there being too much salt there that can actually um, you know, inhibit their hydration rather than help it. So it's fine like if you want to use a, a – there are some really nice canine electrolyte solutions out there, but I, I always add a bit more water than they say just to make sure that the salt concentration isn't too high. And they're still palatable at that level. Um, so there's another thing that we've developed, and, it, and I, I learned about this actually from science that was done on deep water divers and then later on on elite cyclists that were cycling in really warm weather. And that is if you're really concerned about the dog's hydration status, say you're working some dogs in, in really warm, humid weather, and you know that they're not probably going to be able to drink for a few hours while they're out there, um, and you, you don't want them to get dehydrated uh, because you're going to, like you said, do several runs maybe within a day or over several days. We use... Um, once a day in the morning before, and I'm not sure what time of day you guys are running, but let's say, again, that hour and a half to two hours before you run, we'll actually add 1% glycerol or glycerin to the water. And so to make that simple, that's a 10 milliliters or 10 cc's per quart or liter of water. And what that does is that, that that's a normal component of fat, but you're taking it as just the glycerol. That glycerol... Um, crosses almost every cell membrane in the body, but particularly goes into the muscles. And then it pulls water with it and holds onto that water. And then when the dog starts exercising, it actually burns that glycerol as a fuel, and that releases that water already there in the muscle. Wow. So it's, it's better than giving them oral water or IV water even, because mm. they don't have to drink it and absorb it and have it transported. It's already there. And what we found in our dogs, and you know, for us, a warm day running would be, you know, anything above 20 degrees. And when you're starting hitting 40 degrees, and we've had, we've had world championships where it was in the 40s and 50s. That's really a heat stress for our dogs. Mm -hmm. um, and what we find under those conditions is that the dogs will run one to two degrees Fahrenheit cooler when they've, they've been pretreated like this, and they'll maintain their hydration status better over those three days than dogs that are given the same amount of water without this stuff in it. Mm. And, um, and they, they recover better, you know, they eat better, they drink better because they maintain their hydration. Maintaining hydration is really key to maintaining performance, particularly over multiple bouts of performance. So awesome that's, that's stuff. What, that's what we do. And it works. You know, I've been doing that for, shoot, we started it in the 90s. I've never had an issue with a dog having any trouble with that. But like anything else, I always recommend that folks try stuff in training 
before they take it to a competition. You know, just so they're comfortable with it, they know how it works, they know what their dogs look like when they're doing it. And this is completely legal. It's not a drug. It's not a, you know, the World Anti-Doping Association, which is the folks that monitor <laughs> right. drugging for human and canine athletes. Um, that that is not on their list of banned substances because it's a normal component of fat. It's not like anything. The, the the one thing I would caution people though is that you want to give it with water, and I keep it right at that one percent solution. Um, you know, you don't want to go higher than that. Uh, and give us that give us that ratio again, real quick. Sure, that's that's 10 cc's or 10 milliliters, same thing, mm-hmm. in uh, in a quart or a liter of water. They're okay. about the same. And and if you do that, you're never going to run into trouble with it. And the one th- the other thing I'll recommend that you know, like most of us dog mushers, I'm sure you guys are are feeding and watering multiple dogs at a time, usually not just one. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I'll mix that stuff up in a bucket with my bait um, to give to my dogs, but I'll. Um, you want to make sure that each time you, you move to your next dog that you mix it up well because it is a little bit dense, and if you don't do that, it'll tend to sink to the bottom of the bucket. But if you're, if you're just, if you know, take your ladle, um, that's what I, we usually use is a, a ladle, right? We have a ladle that's about one quart of water. We, we mix that up, give it to the first dog, and then just, you know, run the ladle through the bucket a couple times to mix it up again and give it to the next dog, and that way they, they're all getting the same concentration. Mm. Steve, you want to take this to the Coonhound side, like the uh, PKC World Championship or the Super Stakes? Well, I think, and I've I've discussed this with uh, Arley before, and I'm sure he doesn't remember as much as as he travels and speaks to groups. But uh, in a situation, for instance, uh, an event that just happened a couple weeks ago, the PKC World Championship. The dogs uh, have four nights to qualify to move on into the semifinals and ultimately the finals. And the dog has to win his early round, which is a two-hour hunt. Uh, And there is talk of reducing that now to an hour and a half. But in order to advance, uh, he needs to win two of those two-hour casts each night or, or in a single night. Wow. So the dog is given four opportunities to do that. It starts on a Monday. So he has Monday through Thursday. <clears throat> Maybe he's a dog that's real good early. He goes out and wins the early round, has to hunt the second round, doesn't win. Then he comes back Tuesday night, repeats that process. That could actually happen four times in a row to a dog. So wow. now you've got a dog hunting four hours each night. Now, he is going to get probably 30 minutes to an hour rest, but it's not going to be quality rest because it's Mm -hmm. probably going to be in a dog box or whatever, Mm -hmm. riding to and from the hunting ground. And then he comes back, if he's lucky, and he gets those two cast wins in the same night. He's going to come back on Friday night. He's going to go out and be cast with three other dogs. If he wins, then he has to hunt late again. And then... and. If he wins late that second or wins those two casts, then he goes into the final night, which he has to do that again. The, wow. he, he, so actually, a dog the could physically you do, the do it is. <laughs> yeah. So the dog could actually have six double ca- uh, double casts in a row. So, so wow. for dogs like that, you know, and they don't all make it that far, of course. But it really is a testimony to the stamina of the dog. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but for sure. also, so you know, uh, and I think coon hunters have come a long way in uh, their desire to feed the best feeds that they can. And but I think they probably don't understand the training aspects and the recovery aspects as well as they should. And that's probably something we need to to uh, to discuss with you. I know you uh, talk about a thing called periodization training mm-hmm. and uh, variations in training and so forth. So you wanna you wanna address some of those? Sure. Well, let's let's talk about the recovery thing first because that is super interesting um, and challenging. I think. Uh, so uh, if I were working dogs like that, and we have something similar to that, though not exactly the same in our stage races, where the dogs will have to run different distances multiple days in a row and um, and drive between places. And sometimes they'll run one day, they'll drive, and then they'll have to run that night as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's similar, but not exactly right. the same. Right. Um, you know, I, I think... What I would key in on those dogs would be, first of all, hydration, and I I would use that glycerol water loading thing each day, but I'd only do it, you know, that that once a day, and it would I would do it before the um, the initial cast, the the first the initial cast, yes, like a couple Mm -hmm. hours before the initial cast, and then Mm -hmm. I would give them some water afterwards. But one of the things that we've been working on, and you know, this would be a really interesting application of that is. You know, I talked about how we want to really focus on optimizing fat um, utilization or metabolism so that we um, can spare the carbohydrates. Well, in, when you're running dogs like that, you are going to be getting close to, to running out of that carbohydrate tank, even if the dogs are fat adapted. And one of the things that you can do is give them a dose of um, easily absorbable carbohydrates in water right after they finish running. Um, and there's a couple different ways to administer that, and I can t- tell you about that. Um, and, you know, if you have even sure. 15 minutes in between casts, this stuff can help. Um, it's what, it, what, but the type of carbohydrate you use is super important because you use the wrong type, and it either won't be effective or it could even cause trouble. So the type that you want to use is um, what we call maltodextrin. I know that's a long word, but it's, it's actually really easy to understand. It's basically a digested cornstarch. So, you know, we think of sugars um, in units of, or starches in terms of units of sugars, right? So, um, you know, table sugar is, is a disaccharide or two sugars linked together. Um, glucose is a single sugar. That's the one that's used mostly by muscle. And like if you were to give pasta, that would be a starch, which would have hundreds of sugars linked together. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about those is that whether you have 100 sugars or one sugar, it takes the same amount of water to hydrate them. So by using smaller chains, you don't, it doesn't take as much water to process them. So we use these chains that are like 10 to 12 sugar units long. That's what maltodextrin is. It also doesn't um, cause a big insulin spike, which is good because if you get your insulin too high, it can impair um, your ability to use fat. And you, you certainly want to be able to use fat on that next cast. But what it will do, the, these, these 10 to 12 um, sugar unit long uh, modified starches, what we call maltodextrin, um, those are, are digested extremely fast, um, absorbed extremely fast, and put back in the muscle extremely fast. And this is an interesting thing that this is the key part right here. Um, dogs and people are, um, when they exercise, they have these, these, these transporters that move sugars from their bloodstream into their muscle that are, that are actually 
kept inside the muscle cell and then put on the surface of the cell during exercise, and they stay there for about 30 minutes after exercise, which means that you can dump a huge volume of sugar back into that muscle where you want it to be for the next cast as long as you give it to the dog within 30 minutes of the time it finishes exercise. If you wait longer than 30 minutes, then the rate of transport is so slow it doesn't really have much of an effect. So what we do is we actually, like when I come in from the heat of a race, I've got this stuff already poured out in bowls, and I have one person assigned to every dog, and as soon as I stop the sled, they unharness that dog and stick it in a dog box on the truck with a bowl of water, and that dog drinks that water right up. And I know that it's getting the maximum effect of, of recharging. And we've actually gone through, this was years ago, and actually biopsied dogs after exercise to see you know, different points, four hours and 24 hours after exercise. And if we do this, we completely replace their their glycogen stores, their stored carbohydrate stores um, by 24 hours after exercise. But we replace about 60% of that within just the first few minutes. So Amazing. But my, my point is that I think you could really help your guys recover by doing this. Now, one of the things that we've gone to doing, because some of our dogs don't drink super well immediately after exercise, and this would be a little bit of a challenge for you guys, but mm-hmm. with today's technology and trucks and stuff where you've got these plug-in coolers, I think it would work. We actually mix that maltodextrin up with a little bit of um, a flavor, like it, it could whatever you use to bait your water, you know, something that the dog really likes, um, and a little bit of gelatin, and, um, and we pour it in ice cube trays and give it to the dogs as an ice cube. And it, it'll generally be about the consistency of a farcicle, you know, so it's really actually mm. easy to chew. The dogs love that consistency. They seem to really like the cold too after they run. And, you know, generally it's like three or four ice cubes per dog and you've got it in them. And, uh, and it, it, you know, they'll take that right as they, they, I mean, they actually love it as a treat right when they finish. And it's, again, another thing that you can train them to do in your day-to-day training so that it, um, when you get to a big competition like that, it's, it's not something new that they're not sure that what it is and they're not sure how they're, you're not sure that they're going to take it or how sure. they're going to handle it. But I'll tell you what, that it makes a huge difference when you have multiple bouts of exercise like that. I've used that also when I've been, um, like uh, I, I, bird bird dog hunting, you know, I have a setter here for years that we used to hunt ptarmigan with, and I'd hunt 11, 12 hours a day with that dog. And every 20 or 30 minutes, I would just give him a squirt of this stuff in a, from a water bottle, and um, and he'd hunt all day long like that. That is an interesting. It's, that is an interesting topic. I've always thought about, you know, having carrying water with me on the hunt and being able to rehydrate during a cast or during during an actual hunt. Would they let you do that? Is that within mm-hmm. the rules? Yeah. Yes, I, sure. I'll tell you what, that's the easiest thing to train a dog to do. Um, they just love that. And if you put a little bit of this maltodextrin in there, you know, um, you, and it's not much. I mean, it's like in a, say, a one-quart water bottle, if you put in like, uh, let's see, how, how, how big would it, I, I know it varies across breeds, but what, what size would be a, an average weight for, for the dogs that you're working with? 60 pounds for males, maybe 50, 45 to 50 to, for females. Some of the, some of the males do get larger than that, but. Uh, Perfect. No. So, yeah. so one to two ounces of this stuff in a quart of water and just shake it up and, and give them a squirt. It would wow. now, really help them. Where do we get this? Oh, that's a great question. The easiest place to get it, there are commercial places that sell it and it'll be kind of expensive because, you know, They'll either put some flavoring in it or they'll brand it all up. But you can buy it in 50-pound bags from um, 
places like Cisco, you know, the food food mm-hmm. distributors, because they use that stuff to thicken gravies. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really common common ingredient in cooking because, you know, it's for thickening sauces and stuff like that. That's where yeah, I heard the name before. You're saying yeah. multidextrin. Malto. So it's M-A-L, yeah, M-A-L-T-O-D-E-X-T-R-I-N, maltodextrin. Yeah. Very and, good. Uh, yeah, that's a, it, it's it's a fifty pound bag. Of that. I I haven't bought one in a while, but I think they run around twenty five dollars, and that would now, do you for a long time. I know our podcasters out there can rewind this program in it, but I'm not. Uh, uh, what was that formula again? Uh, to you give the dog how, how, how much? Yeah, to give them? how much to mix or how much to one, give them? one to two ounces. So it's, you know, thirty to sixty grams of this maltodextrin in a quart of water. And then just shake it all up, and uh, it'll suspend in that water. It'll make the water look a little bit cloudy, um, but it will dissolve. And, and you um, want and them you want to? to... Put... I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. You want them to drink the whole quart of water? Then well, is that the idea? You, that'd be wonderful. Like if you could get them to drink at least half of that um, right when they come back from exercise. But if you're mm-hmm. able to, you know, every 20 to 40 minutes during a cast, if you're able to call them in and give them each a squirt, man, that's going to really help them keep going. Yeah, I'm. I'm seeing. Carrying a, we're going to revamp this whole thing. There's all kind, going to be all kinds of PKC rules come out now and cast rules for competition. <laughs> but I envision, you know, a, a standard quart water bottle being packed with me. And when I'm at the tree, I pull the dog off the tree, I give him a squirt, let him lap it up, you know, drink right out of the bottle, cast yeah, him again. You, you can teach him to drink right out of the bottle. Um, we do that with all of our puppies. Yeah, and then you know, then it's they, they actually when they see the bottle, they'll come running right over and open their mouth. Yeah, I've carried a hydration pack with me for years, and and I, I do too. At water a dog right out of the hydration pack. So you bet. Is it going to no, hurt? A, it's not going to hurt way. me either. <laughs> no, no, that's true. No, you could take it too. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, incidentally, um, another great thing about doing what you guys just described is, so dogs are different than we are in the way that they cool, right? So we sweat, and that cools our whole body. We, we put liquid on the outside of our skin. It evaporates and, coo- and cools our body down. Dogs, um, and this is true of a lot of carnivores, they, they don't sweat. So what they have done is they've adapted a way to keep their brain cool, but it kind of at the expense of their body. So what do dogs do when they get hot? They pant. Right. The reason they pant is because they've got this very complex blood vessel matrix in the back of their throat that um, acts like a radiator and the blood going to the brain gets cooled off and the blood coming back from the the brain um, you know basically is, is warmed up through this thing it's a counter current exchange if you guys are familiar with those that those how radiators and other things work so my point is that you know the, the act of panting you know use is muscular work in the chest and it actually does generate a fair bit of heat on the dog's overall body but it keeps the brain cool and as long as the brain is cool the dog can exercise and, and do okay up to a point mm. But, the, but to make that radiator function as efficiently as it can, you, squirting a little bit of that water in there really improves that because you guys, I'm sure, have seen this. What happens when a dog gets really warm? They get kind of frothy in their mouth, and that froth kind of builds up in the back of their throat. It's like a white foam, and it actually insulates that cooling mechanism and keeps it from working well. So just a squirt of water back there scrubs that off and then exposes those that area where those blood vessels are and makes their, their radiator work more effectively. So it's, actually you're going to really do it's a amazing. lot to help cool your dog off by doing that. This is the kind of hacks. I w- these are the kind of hacks I was looking for right here. This is it. 
So, yeah, I love it. I love it. Hey, Doc, we are going. We are on an hour. How are you doing? How are you doing? For I'm time? fine. I'm fine for time. If you guys want to keep going, I can go for probably another 15 minutes, and then I'm sorry, I'll have to run. But if we we could do this again another time, if you want. Oh, oh that'd gosh. be uh, awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, Arlie, uh, we've talked about feeding a good quality diet year round, keeping them on the same diet. We've talked about how to hydrate them. We've talked about letting them recover. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your training regimen with your sure. dogs, you know, and I, let's say I, I'm looking at uh, 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 typically these dogs are laying around all summer. Uh, they're being hunted some. If you live in Florida, you don't hunt in the summer because of alligators and cottonmouth oh, moccasins man. and all wow. that stuff that want to <laughs> eat your puppy. Yeah, we and don't have so, <laughs> But anyway, so this guy is looking ahead. The UKC has their world championship in September. There's a big event called Autumn Oaks. There's the PKC Super Stakes and the world championship in October. September and October are huge months for the coonhound sport and also for the big game hunters because the bear seasons typically come in in September in Wisconsin and Michigan and so forth. So a guy, what can, how does he want to train for that flurry of activity that he's going to, his dog's going to encounter come September each year. Could you, could you repeat that question one more time? Just make sure I got it right. <laughs> the, the last part, just the last part of it. About I said, how, gonna how, how does a guy take that dog that's been hunted marginally through and conditioned marginally mm -hmm. through the summer? And it may get back to the question I asked you earlier, but now he's going into this flurry of field trial night hunt type activity for the months of September and October. Uh, how's he going to get that dog physically besides the diet? What do we do to condition that dog for that activity? No, that's a great question. And, you know, there are lots of ways to answer that. I always say, uh, you, you know, pick dog, one. <laughs> well, dog, dog training is a lot like, uh, uh, you know, there isn't just one way to get to where you want to go. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think you, you do have to have a plan, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a guy that was just phenomenal in our sport named Daigle Ellis. And, um, he dominated the sport for about 10 years. And I, this was while I was in the sport. In fact, I was second to him five times, I think before we won. Um, and everybody always asked me, um, aren't you, aren't you, don't you wish you were racing in a different time period, you would have won all those races. And I said, no, I, I get to race against the best. And when I beat them, it'll really mean something. So, you know, w w the reason I bring that up is that I couldn't copy what he was doing and beat him because he was doing what he did better than anybody else. What I could do is find a different way. Mm. And, and what I did is I, I looked at what I could do and what my dogs, you know, what their strengths were, trying to maximize their abilities and minimize their and my weaknesses and um and find a way to beat them and we did we 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 finally did so in 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 light of that what i did i i i kind of veered away from what everybody else does in our sport and that is they race their dogs until the snow goes away then they put them on a chain and they don't they don't usually touch those dogs again until they start training in the fall and usually that's after moose season sometimes so it might be mid-september to, to mid-october um and, you know, for me, that was a lot of lost time. And so what I did in the summer is I did do some training with the dogs, but I did a lot of what we call long, slow distance training. Um, so it was not super intense. 
but it built a great aerobic base that once we started training, my dogs started so far ahead of everybody else that we could just stay in front of them the whole season. And, you know, that type of stuff doesn't take, it takes some time, but it doesn't, it's, it's not hard. Um, I mean, even walking with dogs, going out in the woods with your dogs, swimming them, um, bicycling with them, do, if you can do anything with them like that for up to 45 minutes or an hour, two to three times a week, you're going to be so far ahead when your season starts. And I know that that may not be easy, but, you know, roading dogs, because, you know, you guys are like us. You're, you're dealing with a group of dogs, not an individual dog, right? But if you can road them, um, and, and I mean, for short, it doesn't take a long time, uh, 15 minutes to half an hour. Um, you're going to put a base on those dogs that that is going to set them way ahead when you get to your, your season. And then, you know, the other thing that I would do, and I think this is this fits really well with what you guys do, is... There were two races every year. We have a triple crown, right? Um, so it's the Fur Rendezvous Open World Championship, the Open North American Championship, and the Toke Race of Champions. Only five people in the history of our sport have won those all in one year, and we were fortunate enough to do that in 2013. Awesome. So for yep. for us, um, the 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 Fur Rendezvous was the race that we focused on because I knew that if I could win that race, I had a really good shot of winning the other two. And it's a different, It's each race has a little bit different, it's kind of like the Kentucky Derby, you know, the Fur Rendezvous is three 25-mile heats in downtown Anchorage, the whole thing's in the city, so it's that's the steeplechase race. The Open North American is three, two 20s and a 30, so that's speed, speed, and then endurance. And the Toke Race of Champion is two 16s, so that's just speed. So so there were slightly different things, but if you could, if you were prepared for the Rendezvous, you were prepared for the other two pretty much automatically. And so... I guess what I would ask you, Steve, is in, in, in when you're starting to look at these earlier um, competitions, I'm assuming that those are not your world championships, that, 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 that your world championship is a slightly different time than that? Yes. Is well, that actually, the, it, it they culminate at the end of the UKC and the end of September, the PKC at the end of October. Man, those are uh, early in the, in the year, huh? They really are, yeah. That's and for uh, you guys. It is. Uh, later in the year would be better because that summer heat and so forth. Yeah. Now, events yeah. are held all year long. Uh, yeah, but qualifying your, your championship events. is at the yeah. beginning of the season. That's very yeah. challenging and mm-hmm. interesting. So mm-hmm. I think in that case, what I would try to do is – I mean, so you have your whole season. Let's let's go to the season before. Let's say that you want to win next year, okay? Right. So what I would focus on doing is getting your dogs as prepared as possible during this season, which would mean, you know, going to as many competitions as you can, both for the conditioning part of it, but also the training. I'm assuming, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that like your sport, our sport also requires a lot of training. I mean, the dogs have to know what they're doing, mm-hmm. and, and, sure. and they they learn that by doing it. Right, um, and that's the same as our sport, right? Uh, things like pacing themselves, how to pass, how to go through crowds and stuff. For us, going over culverts and all that—that's all part of the training. So, so what I would try to do then is get them as as prepared as possible this season, and then try to maintain as best you can, even if you're doing it by bits and pieces through the summer, so that there there isn't that much of a gear up you have to do to get ready for your big race. Or, I'm sorry, your big competition. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, early in the season. And and it's amazing how well dogs can hold on to fitness once they're fit. So if you get them really fit um, through the spring of this, this year coming up and you're able to do, you know, work with them, say on the, on the conditioning side of things, I'd try to go at least three times a week 
and build up to maybe where you could go for an hour at a time. Um, but you're going to have to play that by ear based on weather. You may have to go at night. You may even have to travel a little bit to do it. Um, if, if the, I mean, if, I'm sure it's the same with you guys. This is a highly competitive thing that you're trying to win here. I mean, it's not like oh. anybody can walk in and win this thing. Absolutely. You're, so you're going to have people that have dedicated all their efforts into it. And, um, I mean, that's what makes it great when you win, but it also makes it darn hard to do. And for us, we only had one month when the dogs weren't in a conditioning program, and that's because it, that was the month when the snow melted and the things were just too, you know, we call it breakup season here. It was too sloppy to really tra- to condition them. So what we did is we worked a lot on training them during that period of time so that we could work with them all loose, you know, so they would come when they are called in groups with up to 20 dogs. Um, you know, they'd sit when you feed them and wait until you let them eat. Um, you know, they'd jump into their dog box. Just things that make it easier working with them as a as a group, because we work with dogs in groups just like you do, right. um, and and so that's what we would do in that one seat, that one month when we couldn't condition. But the rest of the year, we would start with the slow, long distance conditioning, and then get closer and closer to what we actually are going to do during our competitions as the competitions got closer. So we'd start hooking them to a four wheeler and let them pull that, just like you guys do with roading, and then we would um, then we would go and and actually once the snow got here of course hook them to a sled and Mm -hmm. initially we we wouldn't worry so much about speed we'd be more worried about stamina and then as we got closer we'd build the speed and and then it was all rest and recovery great stuff doctor great great stuff and and very applicable to what we can we're doing and uh, we would love to have you back on uh, to to explore there's so many things that we haven't talked about yet uh, that we'd like to explore with you Chris uh, what say you well I say that um, exactly what you said I'd love to have you back on dr. Reynolds and and uh, be able to drill down into some of this stuff a little more in depth uh, spend some more time and explore some new new opportunities there so we really appreciate yeah, your that. time well, I appreciate talking to you guys. This has been fun, but I'll tell you something else I'd love to do sometime if we could work that out is I'd love to go to one of these bigger competitions with you guys and um, and just really see what your dogs are doing. I love to watch dogs in any, you know, elite dogs in any format are just really inspiring to me. And I'd love to, to see that just to understand it so that maybe we could help you guys a little better. Well, well how how is your calendar for September, October of the year? Is that a hard time for you to get out, get away? Because there are several events during that end time. End of September through mid-October is good. The, you know, the first mm. part of September, i got to be a little selfish. That's our moose season, and we only have two weeks, and that, <laughs> that's food for the <laughs> year. So uh, that, one, that one I'm a little selfish on. But after yeah. that, we're pretty open. Well, we will sh- – yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, you go ahead and finish, but I was going to say that we can do a pre uh, quid pro quo here because I want to come to Alaska and see these sled dogs. That just, Oh yeah. It absolutely intrigues me. Well, we'd yeah. love to have you. We'd love uh, to have you guys. Well, here's the thing, uh, Arlie, we could do, uh, our next podcast with you on site at one of these major events and we'll, and we'll be in touch with you and we can work it out as far as, but we have the autumn Oaks event in Indiana on Labor Day weekend. That kind of kicks things off for the fall competition season. Although these competitions occur all year long, but these are the big ones. And then, as I said, the UKC World Championship is a, actually it's a two weekend affair. They they go to a zone uh, event 
and then follow it up the next weekend. And the finals is a three-day deal. So that would be a possibility for you maybe. That would be really neat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll, well, look keep in touch yeah. and see if, if you guys don't mind, and I don't mean to – impose mm. here but if you don't mind <laughs> not at all if you could get a, if you could get a hold of me like in january or february because my calendar starts to fill up after that right um and maybe we could block this off i think it'd be really exciting to do that we can make it happen sir yes sir. no problem Alrighty. <laughs> and i can probably get support from the purina end here to, to help out with that too so thank yeah. you yeah all right well, well that's great we've got a tradition of how we close these out and i'm going to hand it over to steve once again, I thank you, Dr. Reynolds, for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm. I mean, I could sit here for the rest of the day and talk to you about this stuff. Uh, certainly looking forward to, to any future conversations we can have, but I'm going to hand it right over to you, Steve. <laughs> Arlie, uh, I know that you keep your dogs well-contained. They're all in harnesses when you're running these sprints and so forth. But in our sport, we turn the dogs loose. And there's a bear hunter in West Virginia that coined this term when someone questioned whether his dog was taking the trail the right way or not. And we always close out with this, and we'll say it to you, sir. Arlie, you follow your hound, and I'll follow mine.